Hi, I'm JC Ritmer, co-founder and CEO of Biteable. I'll be your podcast host for this week's special edition of the Biteable podcast with guest John Eichard, recorded live from the Organization for Competitive Markets Conference in Kansas City. John Eichard is an author, speaker, and professor emeritus of agricultural economics at the University of Missouri. He was raised on a small dairy farm in southwest Missouri in a time where electricity, running water, and indoor plumbing hadn't quite reached his family's small part of rural Missouri. John spent the first half of his 30-year academic career as a livestock marketing specialist before making a change to sustainable agriculture after seeing firsthand the destruction caused by the industrial policies he had been taught and in turn that he had taught to farmers. I've had the pleasure of watching John give keynote speeches three times now, and every time I see him get behind the podium to give one of his fiery, impassioned speeches, I walk away with pages upon pages of hastily scrawled notes and inspirations which carry me through the work we do at Biteable for the weeks to come. I hope you're able to get some of that same inspiration from our conversation. Listen in as we discuss the history of monopolization and corporate influence in our agriculture system, the decline of the family farm in rural America, the rise of private funding for agriculture research at public universities, his work on the new film Right to Harm, and my favorite part, how we can work together to fix our food system, support our farmers, and how if we each work on our little piece of the world, we can work together towards a better one. No Better Live Best is dedicated to supporting food and health literacy in people of all ages. Our mission is to cut through the misinformation surrounding food, health, and nutrition because we believe that when people know better, they can make the right choices and live their best lives. We are presented by Biteable Foods. They use blockchain and Internet of Things technology to build traceable, transparent food systems because it shouldn't take an investigative journalist to find out where food comes from. So we're here at the Organization for Competitive Markets Conference for Food and Agricultural this Food and Agriculture this year. Um, and one of the things I love about coming to places like these are hearing all of the stories of the farmers and the agricultural scientists and the agriculture enthusiasts that come to these things. And not a single story is ever boring. Um, and they're all really inspiring. So if you would mind giving us a little bit about your story and how you got started into what you do now. My story, okay. <laughs> Well, it all started when I was born and raised on a on a small dairy farm down in southwest Missouri, and my brother's still on that farm. In fact, uh, Saturday I'll be going down along with my brother and sister to visit him on the farm, and it was always, he kept it small all through the years by going to a grass-based operation, and it was always essentially a full-time family farm, and he was milking less than 50 cows whenever he, he retired and made a good living there, had a good life there, raised two kids. But anyway, I grew up on that farm, and then I was fortunate enough to be able to go to the University of Missouri after I got out of high school because there was really only room for one on the farm, and there were actually five of us kids. So <laughs> he was the one that really wanted to be there. But the rest, I wanted to stay in agriculture. So I, I went to the University of Missouri, and I uh, started studying agricultural economics. I didn't know what that was when until <laughs> I got there. But I took a course in it, and it made sense to me, and... So I continued in, in that after I got out of um, undergraduate school. I worked for three years with Wilson Packing Company, which was the fourth largest meat packer in the country at that time. So I was still in agriculture. and I decided to come back to graduate school, and I eventually got a Ph.D. in agricultural economics. Uh, but all through the years, then, I had a 30-year academic career. I, I always had an extension appointment, which meant that I was out working with farmers. I did research and teaching, but I always had at least 50% percent 
where I was out working with farmers and working with people in rural communities. The last five years at the University of Missouri, we had a project that was linking sustainable agriculture with sustainable community development in North Missouri. So I've just spent my whole life basically involved in agriculture in one way or another. Um, you know, as I said here at the conference, I spent the first half of that career kind of promoting a model of agriculture that I spent the second half and since retirement uh, kind of being a critic and, and proposing a, a sustainable alternative. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the transition you made from from um, touting the the positive the positive parts of industrial agriculture and um, a bit more about why, why you thought that was the way to go then and why yeah. you think this is the way to go now? Yeah, um, when I got out of uh, graduate school and this was kind of the conventional thinking at that time, particularly as economists. Um, that the idea was that if we could make agriculture more efficient, if we could reduce the cost of production, uh, it would create economic opportunities for farmers, that kind of the innovative, creative farmers, entrepreneurial types of farmers, to be more profitable than they were before by reducing your cost of production. And we would have more viable uh, family farms out in rural communities, which would mean strong, viable rural communities. I'd grown up, you know, in an area that had strong farms and rural communities, and we saw this as, as kind of the next phase of, of moving forward with that kind of positive vision of agriculture. But, but the most important thing and what justified kind of the transition from the family farms, diversified family farms that I grew up on to what I now call industrial agriculture was the idea that we needed to provide domestic food security. Up until the 1960s, uh, the farm programs and everything were focused on keeping family farms, farmers on the land. Economic security for family farmers were food security. But during the 60s, there was a real focus on, you know, the poverty programs and hunger in rural areas and things of this nature. So this provided an opportunity then to say, okay, we need to change agriculture because the old model of providing food security is leaving hungry people. So what we'll do is we'll make agriculture more efficient. It'll reduce the cost of production. It'll reduce food costs, and we'll make good food affordable and accessible to everyone. Sounds great. That was, that was really, <laughs> yeah, that was really the, the driving force behind it. And but, but I thought it was going to be good for rural communities and good for family farmers as well. And then into the 1980s, uh, I began to question all of that because those were the years of what I still call the farm financial crisis. And we had been telling farmers, you know, to increase the efficiency of agriculture. We we chose a, a, a very specific method, and that was to imply industrial practices and technologies. Uh, to agriculture. We would specialize, specialize in doing fewer things than you can do those things better and do them more efficiently. Uh, so we would specialize and, and farmers did. You know, they were diversified farms and they specialized in crops or livestock and then a particular species of livestock, a particular cropping system or whatever, and then in particular phases of it. So you specialize and, and then you standardize, you, you kind of standardize those processes because you have to make all that fit together, you know, all those specialized things. And, but once when you, you standardize, then you can routinize something so you can give people kind of a recipe. And many things you can mechanize once you can kind of simplify it down to a basic routine and you can mechanize. So when you specialize and then standardize and mechanize, then you can expand the size of the operation and accomplish what we economists called economies of scale. So, so that's what, you know, that's the, that's the direction that, that we were going. 
So that meant then that as the farms got larger, then they inevitably had to be fewer because we were increasing production faster than the overall consumer demand and couldn't absorb the increased production from those more efficient farms. And so you had larger farms and fewer farms. So we had told the farmers to either get big or get out. That was the thing. And my assumption was, and, and what we had been taught as economists, well, farmers will find some better occupation if they, they'll either you know, be better farmers or they'll have a better place somewhere else. Uh, but a lot of the farmers that had followed the so-called expert advice uh, during the 1970s, which were relatively prosperous times in agriculture, had borrowed a lot of money at record high interest rates. These were inflationary years during the 1970s. Um, we were going to feed the world then, you know, the export markets were expanding. But then we got into the 80s. And we got into a domestic recession, which turned into a global recession. The export markets dried up. And the farmers who had gotten big by borrowing a lot of money at record high interest rates were going broke. They couldn't even make the interest payments on the loan, let alone pay off the principal. And so I was the uh, department head of the University of Georgia Extension Service, I mean, uh, Agricultural Economics Extension at that time. And it was, was our job, basically, to go out and try to help these farmers figure out some way to survive. We'd have them bring their records in and, and see how much equity they had left and see if we could work out a plan where they could survive or if they had equity left, try to talk them into getting out while they still had something or, you know, or at the very least, talk them out of committing suicide because farmers were committing suicide because they're losing their farms. It was a big public issue. It was on the network news shows. <clears throat> So it was a very, very difficult time. And I, I began to realize in talking to these farmers, it was the farmers that had followed what we so-called experts had been advising them to do that were in the biggest trouble. And I said, there's something fundamentally wrong with this. I didn't get all this education, all this experience to go out here and drive farmers out of business. I was going to help them. And then I could see not only was it uh, destroying the family farms, but the rural communities that depended upon these farming families. It's, you know, it takes people to support rural communities, not just production. Production, the benefits, as we see now, go somewhere else rather than the rural communities. Mm -hmm. And so as the, as the families were forced to leave the rural communities, uh, you know, we were not only boarding up the stores on Main Street, but we we're losing the rural schools and losing rural health care and you didn't have people to you know serve in volunteer positions on city councils and volunteer fire departments all this kind of stuff so rural communities were just withering and dying and then it was only after that that i began to realize the kind of environmental impacts of industrial agriculture soil erosion was rampant you know farm fence row to fence row and tear out the fence rows and and the agricultural chemicals and pesticides all that made industrialization possible you know, that allowed us to specialize and so on, then we were polluting the air and water with chemical and biological waste. And, and then the mechanization, again, that was part of the World War II technology that was, you know, we're getting, farms are discontinuing to get bigger and bigger. So there was no end to it. Uh, but, but anyway, I began to realize that, hey, this kind of agriculture we've been promoting, uh, it isn't good for farmers, it's not good for rural communities, it's not good for the land, it's not good for society, uh, it's not sustainable. And so that's when I realized that I had to change my career, I couldn't continue to do that.
Yeah. And when we're talking about the death of family farms and the death of diversified operations, we're also talking about the rise of monopolies and, and, and right. the rise of industrial agriculture. Um, so what has your experience been watching um, the, the coming up of these monopolies and the amount of um, companies now that are, are being bought out and then also put into this system, even with, um, even with labels that say otherwise and a brand that says otherwise, they're yeah. being bought out? And well, first of all, <clears throat> the it kind of corporatization of agriculture was a natural consequence of this continued consolidation. Um, because, you know, first we consolidated into larger and larger farming operations, independently owned farming operations. But to continue the consolidation, then the large corporations could invest in even larger operations. And when, even when they didn't invest in the larger operations, then they gained control through comprehensive contractual sort of arrangements. So that's just a logical step. And you go to the national corporations, and now we're into the, the multinational global corporations that basically control a lot of agriculture in this country. And, and the, the things about the corporations sort of pretending they're something that they're not goes back to what emerged out of the what I call the failure of industrial agriculture, and that's sustainable agriculture. Because I wasn't the only one that realized <laughs> there was something fundamentally wrong. Every people that realized that, that that was wrong long before I did, and that's when the organic farming movement started basically back in the early 60s. As soon as industrialization of agriculture began, and we began to use fertilizers, pesticides. There was a whole bunch of people that said, this isn't right. You can't use poisons to produce food. <laughs> so, so that movement had, had already started. But then the, the sustainable agriculture movement really came on in, in the late 80s and 90s. And sustainable agriculture is an agriculture that can meet the needs of the present, all the people in the present, without diminishing opportunities for the future. And in order to do that, it has to be ecologically sound. It had, you have to take care of the soil and the natural environment because that's where everything comes from. Everything of use to us, certainly our food, starts with the earth. But everything comes from the things of the earth. If you destroy the ability of the earth to produce things of value to us, you can't sustain society. But on farms, it's very clear. If you destroy the productivity of the land and the natural ecosystem or poison the environment, then you can't sustain that. But the purpose of agriculture is to meet the needs of society, you know, as consumers, but also to provide employment for people like farmers and people in rural communities and to, to serve the greater needs of society as a whole. So, you know, it has to be socially responsible or society won't support that kind of agriculture. It doesn't need it. And then it has to be. It has to be uh, ecologically sound, socially responsible, and it has to be economically viable. The farmers have to be able to stay in business economically in order to, to operate those kinds of farms. Well, now I'm getting back to the, the original question. So that movement became more and more popular with consumers. <clears throat> the organic movement during the 90s was growing at a rate of 20% per year. In fact, continued at that rate up until the, the Great Recession, as we call it, in 2008. It's still growing, you know, 8 10% per year. Fastest growing segment. And then the local food movement and the natural foods and things of that nature. So this began to eat into the, to the conventional uh, food market. And so the big corporations then began to say, hey, there's something here. If we, wanna, if we you know, don't want this market taken care of us, then we've got to position ourselves so that we can be considered sustainable producers or green producers or natural producers or whatever. But the fundamental problem was is they're still using the industrial methods. 
they even pretty much captured the organic movement and changed the organic standards where now something like half of the milk, organic milk, comes out of large confinement animal feeding operations, which are the epitome of industrial agriculture. They just recently sanctioned the production of, of organic uh, vegetables in hydroponic operations. So now you have organic without soil. <laughs> I mean, <what laughs> it's really far away that? from the the, the, the initial anyway, movement of organic. So, so you you position the uh, the public relations and the advertising and everything, and you you focus on all of the little things that you're doing that are consistent with the ideas of sustainability trying to convince the consumers, hey, this is sustainable, this is natural, this is really organic, this is what you really want. But that's what they call greenwashing then, is that um, it's not really green, it's just washed to look like green. <laughs> I, I completely agree, and um, I appreciate you speaking on that. And one of, the, one of the things we focus on here is helping regenerative producers um, be able to attain market access uh, for their products because of the, um, those, a lot of those companies are also, as they, as they start into the movement for sustainable and start trying to um, co-opt that movement right. um, for their own purposes, and the, the more attention regenerative agriculture gets, the more likely it is that that will happen with regenerative as well. Right. Um, do you see any, any indication of that happening in our in our current system, well, I, I think uh, you know whatever whatever comes on that proves to be popular with consumers, they'll try to co-opt that in one way or another. And my response to that is is always to go back and recognize that this this movement that we're talking about, sustainability, organic, or whatever, the the people that are driving that movement, it's it's not about the economics of it. It's it's not about just another way to make money. It's not about just for farmers that can't make money in the industrial system say, well, you can make more money selling organic. That, that whole movement is, is driven by the, kind of the social and ethical values of, of sustainability. The idea of sustainability meeting the needs of all in the present without diminishing opportunities for the future, it, that's ultimately an ethical foundation. There's, there's no economic value in doing something for somebody uh, when the benefits will accrue to someone after you're dead. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> economics is about doing something where you get something in return. It's instrumental in the sense that that sense. There's no economic value in doing something solely for the benefit of someone else or society if you won't get anything back from it. So, so sustainability is ultimately about this ethic of feeling a responsibility of taking care of the earth and taking care of other people. And, and that's what consumers are looking for. They're looking for food that has this kind of ethical and social integrity to it. And, and they don't want their food dollars going for something that's exploiting people and exploiting the earth. And so if you begin to focus just on the economics, as the large corporations are basically obligated to do because that's the common interest of their shareholders or the economic interest. <clears throat> shareholders have all kinds of social and ethical values, but they're scattered all over the world and they have different social and ethical values and electronic trading and mutual funds and pension funds. People don't even know what stocks they're on. So they're driven purely by economics. So the, the people in the sustainable movement, the organic movement, the local movement, I, I say need to focus on and maintain the integrity of the values that are in that product. Truly take care of the land, take care of the earth, and build natural ecosystems, and do the things that are responsible, and care about other people, and 
you know, uh, really reflect their personal ethical and social values. And if you have that personal connectedness, and there's a sense of connection between the, the producer and the person that gets the product, even if they're separated by miles, if you have a sense of personal connection because you connect on the phone or you've got a website or something and you invite them to come to the farm if they want to, if you have that sense of connectedness and you have that, that integrity, then that's your advantage in the marketplace. And once you start in an alternative operation, whether it's a local market or whatever, and, and you become driven solely by the economic incentive, I can make more money doing this. Well, uh, there'll be a corporation that can do that better than you can if it's simply about making money. And if it is simply about making money, then they will do it. Eventually, they'll do it. You see operations start off like the early organic operations that basically started the whole organic movement <clears throat> and they would grow and after a while they would get to the point where they would continue to expand and basically driven by economics and then the big companies would come in and basically say okay we'll either buy you out <laughs> or we'll drive you out of business that's basically what they do they say we can do it better than you can um, but as long as it's driven by that personal integrity that sense of of uh, being a responsible member of society. That's what the greenwashing is about, to try to convince consumers that a corporation can do that. But the personal connectedness is, is the, the thing that really sets apart an authentic sort of organic or authentic local or sustainable or regenerative. It's that, uh, that personal integrity that's involved, the social and ethical values. And if you have the social and ethical values, there's enough consumers that share those same values that will pay premium prices, even if it costs you something more to produce the product, that will pay the prices. The key is to connect with people that share your social and ethical values. And then it becomes not a matter of economics. You don't have to have the lowest cost product anymore. It has to be affordable, but there's a difference between being affordable and being the cheapest. You know, like we were talking about Francis Tickey in Fairfield, Iowa, that mm -hmm. has the, the dairy that sells all of his milk basically within nine miles of the farm, all within his his local community. Well, people don't pay any attention really to how much Francis' milk costs. He, I, he says, well, I, I have it priced, you know, generally in line with the other organic milk and things of this nature. But people don't look at the price. But, but if it was twice as much, then you would say it's not affordable anymore. But it can be more, <laughs> you know, and he makes a good living with 90, 90 Jersey cows. He and his mm -hmm. wife have been there a long time, and they make a good living. They bottle their own milk and make their own yogurt and soft cheese and various other things. But it's the personal integrity. People know Francis and, and Susan and the people in town. He plays in the municipal band, plays trumpet in the municipal <laughs> band. And, and, you know, all kinds of people visit his farm, and it's that personal sense of integrity that we, we want his dairy products. We don't want to buy Horizon, or we don't want to buy even Organic Valley. We want you know, Francis's yeah, milk, we your neighbor's milk. Dairy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and you said something yesterday uh, in your keynote that I, I really loved. You said, the only thing that will change the industrial agriculture system is a consumer-taxpayer revolt. <laughs> Can you talk more about um, how you came to that conclusion, conclusion and what you and why you think that's the solution for rebalancing our food system? Yeah. 
uh, as the agribusinesses have grown into the, the large corporations, they not only gained economic power in terms of concentration where they have market power, and they basically take all the profit out of the market and, and the farmers, whoever has the strongest position in that whole vertical chain from the retailer all the way back to the farmer is the one that gets any profit over and above just what it takes to continue to operate. So, so they've, you know, they've taken all the profit out, but, but in the process they've gained of getting economic power, they've gained political power. They have the power to influence the political system directly through, you know, contributions and lobbying and things of that nature, but also just kind of the whole culture that they've developed within agriculture. So all of the, the people on the agricultural committees, the Senate Agriculture Committee, House Agriculture Committees, those kind of people, are, are people that have been approved by the, the agribusinesses, by corporate agriculture, because they follow that agenda. So if you want to get something through of significance through his legislation, you won't get it through unless they approve of it. Now, you'll get a bone thrown to you once in a while to support organic certification mm -hmm. or some sort of small sustainability program. But, but that's basically window dressing. That's kind of like the greenwashing again. That's just to say, oh, look, we got this program, this program, this program. So we have all the advocacy groups. They go out and they defend these little programs. And this, but the core programs... It are under control of the large corporate agribusiness. You go to the state legislatures, it's the same thing in agricultural states. It's, it's the big farmers. I, 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 I can't get over why that's not a conflict of interest. <laughs> when, when you have big farmers that are sitting on the committees that are determining benefits that go to big farmers. I mean, mm -hmm. how is that okay? But anyway, that's the way it ends up. When I was lived in Missouri, I knew this for a fact, because I was told it by several people. They said, at, at, when I was at the University of Missouri, they said, you're not going to get anything through the Missouri legislature unless it's signed off on by the Farm Bureau, Missouri Farm Bureau, which is a supporter of big industrial agriculture, mm -hmm. and by Moag Industries, which is the lobbying group for the agribusiness community in Missouri. So you, you can't get anything through the committees. So no matter how popular it might be with people in St. Louis or Kansas City, no matter how important it might be, you know, in feeding hungry people or, or taking care of the environment or whatever, you can never get a bill on the floor to be even debated or discussed, even exposed to the urban legislatures or to the non-farm legislature, unless it's approved. So basically, we're in a situation where it's, it's basically impossible to get the bills through. And if you look at as I explained yesterday, if you look at the programs within the Department of Agriculture, virtually every program, every major program since the 1970s, when we had this kind of change in the political philosophy of moving from supporting independent family farms to reducing the cost of food, agriculture efficiency, virtually every program in one way or another supports the industrial agricultural system. Um, as I pointed out yesterday, industrial agriculture, industrial anything, is very risky, particularly agriculture, because you've got huge investments in equipments and buildings and all sorts of things, land now and so on. And you're dealing with an industry where the weather variability can destroy your crop or you can't get the crop in like you did this spring because of wet weather or you get an early frost or whatever. you got diseases of crops that can wipe out a crop. you got diseases in livestock that can wipe out a whole flock of poultry or a whole herd of cattle or whatever. And then you've got these uh, market conditions where you have periodic oversupply that drive you into depressions, you know, like we've got in dairy now 
you go through those situations. So it's a very risky business. Well, what we've done as taxpayers through farm policy is we've come in and absorbed all that risk. We, we absorb 60% of the crop insurance payments come absorbed by the taxpayer. And we have, uh, you know, deficiency payments and price supports. And we have subsidized uh, uh, credit, uh, low interest loans and guaranteed loans and and a whole range of things, accelerated depreciation, investment. So, so it's the taxpayer that's picking up all the risk of this sort of thing. And so th that's, that's the policy environment that we're in. And you're not going to get changes in those policies because that's what makes industrial agriculture possible. Mm -hmm. And so the legislatures understand this, the big legislators and, and the corporations understand this. And so what I'm saying is the only way we're going to get changes in policies is to have the consumers and the taxpayers wake up to the fact that, hey, you know, the food we're producing basically is making us sick. And there's no, no doubt that there's been a tremendous rise in diet-related illnesses. Obesity is the main one, but related diseases, diabetes, high blood pressure, mm -hmm. Uh, heart disease, various forms of cancer, a whole range of things. And in, everywhere in the world, you take industrial agriculture, industrial food system, we see the same rise in it. Consumers are waking up. Consumers are concerned about antibiotic resistance at, at this coming out of these large livestock operations, these confinement operations. And, you know, all the other agencies in the world, health organizations, the Center for Disease Control, the United Nations had a special summit, said this is coming out of the confinement livestock operations. But, but still, we're, we're the ones that's, that's not right. But, but they're beginning to wake up. So this creates an opportunity for consumers to say, we want change. Maybe the legislator won't change, but we want change. And for the taxpayers to wake up and say, we're spending all this money on agriculture. Like the president just come out and said, okay, what is it, $18 billion now or $16 billion to offset the losses associated with the, uh, the, the tariffs and so on. It says, well, that's, that, that's basically all the money that the Congress allocated for all the farm programs. <laughs> they, they were talking about a $17 billion cost of the total farm programs for this year. And now we got another, what, $16 billion on top of that. So, you know, people are beginning to wake up to the fact, and once they understand that their tax money is going to subsidize a system that's making them sick, then you've got a consumer and you've got a taxpayer revolt. And then they demand change. I, I said yesterday, and I've said it many times, that, that if the taxpayer actually understood what their money was being spent for in terms of agricultural programs and the consequences of that, there would be a revolt. I think they would demand to close down the Department of Agriculture. <laughs> they would say, why am I funding something that's working to, uh, against me? You know, so, so that's what I was getting at. The, the system isn't going to change until consumers and taxpayers say, look, We've had enough of this, and, and we want something that's fundamentally different and something's fundamentally better. We want a sustainable food system that produces good, healthy food. We want to get it to everybody. The markets aren't going to take care of that. Cheap food is never going to solve hunger problems. That's a, that's a problem of income distribution, opportunity, lack of opportunity, and we have to deal with that through government programs that deal with those kinds of issues. That's, a, that's what I call a market failure. Hunger is a market failure which means it has to be dealt with by some means other than trying to, to work through the markets by making food cheap to get it. And we're going to mm -hmm. have to demand changes in that. And we're going to have to demand that our food is nutritious, that our food is safe. 
Um, you know, it's almost become routine now that you have outbreaks. What was recent, there's a big outbreak of salmonella that I don't know if, if they kill people, but it made a lot of people sick. And, you know, that's just almost become routine now. So that's what we're going to have to have is we're going to have to demand fundamental change. Yeah. And one thing you talked about is um, cheap food is cheap food isn't isn't really cheap. We subsidize right. it with our taxpayer dollars. We subsidize it with our health. Right. Um, and so how do you think we are going to be able to move off of this system uh, where our food is subsidized by taxpayer money, our food, is, our food isn't feeding us correctly, and overall we have a system that isn't supporting farmers? And one of the, one of the main things that is talked about at this conference is that um, it's not the farmer's responsibility to feed the world. It's the farmer's responsibility to feed their neighbor, to support right. their communities, right. um, to be able to contribute to society in a meaningful way instead of contributing to a system that's making us all sick. Right. Um, and I forgot about what, do, what the question I was going to ask. How was. do we get to that kind of system? <laughs> yes, how do we get to that kind of system? Right. Well, I, th- I think, first of all, it, it, we, we talk about the idea that food isn't cheap. And as you indicated, you know, we're just not paying the full cost of the food. We're not paying the full cost, you know, because the taxpayer is paying some of the subsidies. But the larger the larger cost comes is from the marketing cost, the low price that we get in in food in the supermarket doesn't reflect the the negative impacts that that kind of agriculture is having on rural communities, that it's having on family farmers. It doesn't reflect the, the the way we treat migrant workers and people that harvest our crops and their low pay and poor working conditions. We're basically imposing a part of that cost that we don't pay on other people who are in positions that can't defend themselves against kind of the corporate exploitation. And when we talk about the environmental cost, in addition to the health care cost, when we talk about the overall environmental cost, basically what we're doing is kind of putting it on a credit card for future generations that are going to have to pay for that by not being able to produce food, not having the resources. So we, we need to talk about that. But the transition, what I propose in a way of starting a transition is to say that we ought to have programs that absorb the risk for family farmers to make a transition from industrial agriculture to a sustainable, regenerative kind of agriculture. And when they agree to adopt that kind of system and you uh, you develop kind of the, the standards that we qualify for that kind of a program, or it would depend on local communities and the local environment and that sort of thing. But it, it's kind of like a conservation security program, but a step beyond that. It would say... If you make this transition, farmers are, feel trapped now in this industrial system. They say, if you make this transition, then during that transition, we will absorb the risk of you not being able to make enough money to sustain your family. I'd limit the, the amount to kind of the, the family income, median family income for a given area. And I'd say, if you have a shortfall relative to other people within this community, relative to that median income, then we as the taxpayers will make up that. If you have a profitable year, then you can do it on your own. If you have an unprofitable year, we'll make up the gap in it. And what we'd be doing is, is saying, okay, we're now we're absorbing the risk of industrial agriculture, but we will change that. And for anybody that wants to change, not just economic reasons, I don't want to bribe people to, to do things because that's the old system, but for people that, that want to make this change, then the taxpayer will absorb the risk of you making that transition because it's in the public interest 
that you have farming systems that are ecologically sound, that take care of the land, that are regenerative, that sequester carbon. You know, carbon sequestration could be an important part of that. And it has to be family-sized farming operations because those are the farms that help us rebuild rural communities and revitalize rural communities that have been just decimated by the industrialization of agriculture. So I think we could justify that from a public standpoint. Say we ought to provide at least as much opportunities for people that want to farm sustainably as people that are trapped in the industrial system. Mm-hmm. So, and, and I, I personally think some of the candidates are willing to support this kind of a program. I think some of the presidential candidates are really moving in that direction. So it's not a lost cause. Yeah. And on, on the topic of that, um, we, we would talk about this co- at this conference, the fact that uh, an election year is actually a very good time to propose new ideas and to propose changes and to get people interested in talking because they want to know who to vote for and why they should support right. them and what kind of policies right. they're making. And so are you seeing any major shifts in policymaking involving sustainable regenerative agriculture from the candidates? Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing uh, ma- major kind of policy shifts on the, on the part of the at least some of the Democratic candidates, the, the more progressive kind of Democratic candidates, you know, I think in the past they've always been reluctant to risk offending, you know, the commodity producers that are kind of trapped in this program. But I've seen several of the candidates now come out with very bold farm policy agendas uh, that say we need a transformation in agriculture. We need to break the grip of large corporations. We need to support family-sized farming operations. We need a transition to sustainable, regenerative farming in order to address climate change and a bunch of other things. And so they're they're basically calling out industrial agriculture with all the negative impacts it's having on rural communities. Their, their rural policies are reflecting the fact that the negative impacts of agriculture that have to be mitigated. So I think there has been a, a dramatic change basically in the last four years. I think a good part of that on the part of the Democrats was that they lost so much of the rural vote. And they beginning to realize, I think some of them begin to realize that if, the, if bo- both candidates, uh, you know, just support the status quo, they're not going to be popular. And I think, you know, Trump was elected or got the royal vote because he said, look, I'm going to give you something different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's they didn't necessarily vote for Trump. They voted because for they said, we've got to have something different. We're suffering out here. And so we're willing to take a chance on something different. And I think some of the Democrats are responding. And we talked about here this here yesterday in the conference is this is an opportunity to work both Democrat and Republican. It's not a necessarily a partisan issue to get the candidates to recognize that there is a rule problem and you need to do something meaningfully about it in terms of foreign policy. Mm-hmm. And, and speaking about the issues that rural communities are having with these industrial agriculture operations, you were uh, contributing to a film called Right to Harm these past right. two years, and it's, it's showing around the country right now. Right. Um, can you talk a bit about your experience with making that film and maybe the story of some of the people you saw? Yeah, I, I had worked with the uh, filmmakers before on a film called Sustainable. <clears throat> and during that film, we had talked about the confinement animal feeding operations. That wasn't the focus of Sustainable, but we had, you know, three or four-hour interview, and we talked about agriculture, and I talked about that. And so they had decided they wanted to come back and, and make a film about what was going on with the large confinement operations. And I think where that relates to what we're talking about now is these Large confinement animal feeding operations or CAFOs or factory farms as people, 
That's, that's the epitome of industrial agriculture. All of the ills of industrial agriculture are readily apparent. <laughs> the, the negative ecological impacts in terms of air and water pollution and the negative public health impacts in terms of you know, respiratory illnesses and antibiotic-resistant bacteria and, and a whole range of things. All of the economic illnesses anywhere we've transformed agriculture from independent family farms to large confinement operations, we lose 90% of the independent producers. It has a devastating effect on rural communities. And so all those negative effects there are epitomized in this. In, in The Right to Harm, that particular documentary, they've taken a, a different approach than in other documentaries that have been done on the subject. Many of them have focused on the mistreatment of animals, animal welfare issues in particular. And those that, that really resonates with the general public. But the filmmakers in this case said, we want to focus on the impacts on people, the people that live near these operations, the people that live in rural communities where they locate. And so the focus of this film is on people. The real emphasis is on public health. They talk about, you know, it isn't just the odors. The odors is a nuisance and a quality of life issue, and that's important if you destroy somebody's quality of life. But, but those odors contain all sorts of, of um, you, you know, different kinds of gases and different particulates and things of that nature. The, most, uh, the hydrogen sulfide and ammonia and methane, all of those are potentially desiccant gases that come out of those operations. And then when the, the dust particles and things like that can carry uh, antibiotics, antibiotic-resistant bacteria, all sorts of, of things, whatever's in those operations can get blown out in the community around them. And what you see in this film is, is people whose lives have been fundamentally changed by the negative um, sort of quality of life and, and public health impacts of, of CAFOs. There was the, the lady in the, in the trailer, but I, I know the lady I've gotten to know her in, in North Carolina, that they were actually had these big irrigation spray guns that were spraying so close to her house that it was splattering on the side of her house. And, you know... How, how can how can anybody do how something? How can you live like, like that? And there's several people in it that have been driven out of their homes. I know people personally in, in Iowa, close to Fairfield, that have that have had to abandon their homes for health reasons. You have to leave, go somewhere else. Several people I know, because somebody opened a cape fold next to them, even if they were there there before. And then when they try to come around and the legislature won't do anything, they're virtually unregulated. They say they're regulated. But again, every regulation that impacts a CAFO has to be signed off on by the Farm Bureau, the pork producers, the beef producers, the poultry producers. Well, you can imagine how stiff the regulations are, and they're basically totally ineffective is what's being shown here today. And, and another focus of this that I think is important, it, it focuses on the failure of governance, the, the failure of the, of the government agencies that have responsibility of protecting <clears throat> the public health and safety, which is the highest priority that a government has the responsibility of doing, is protecting the health and safety of the people. And the failure of governments to respond because of the economic and political influence of the CAFO operators and the people that are supporting the CAFOs. And so this is bringing, you know, a different message home, I think, with respect to CAFOs. 
I've, I've been to like three screenings so far, and, and you get a very sort of mixed reaction from, you know, it's, it's not the same reaction that you would get with the, the ones that deal on animal welfare issues. And then you get sort of a universal sort of repulsion or whatever. And I think in the case where the impact is really on people, people, they, don't, they really don't know what to think. It's, is this really going on? Is, is this real or isn't it? Yeah, is it real that Surely, someone can do something yeah. so close to my Surely house that affects my, yeah, my health? And be, uh, you know, somehow there must, and so it, I, I don't know how the, you know, how the film is going to be received, but it's, but it's solid and it's factual and it tells a very important story. So I hope we get it out to, to a lot of people because it's kind of the, the people, the, the, the failure of governments and the impact on people's lives. That's what it's showing. And, and that's happening for all kinds of industrial agriculture. It, it's just more obvious. It's just more out there in your face yeah. <laughs> with KFOs than it is in some of the other things that are going on. Mm -hmm. and, and talking a bit more about um, the failures of government, <laughs> um, you and I actually both have something in common. We both went to public universities um, within the states that we grew up in. Um, and in recent years, uh, state governments have been really cutting back on funding for those public universities, especially in Iowa and Missouri. Um, and I'd like to talk a bit about how the effect of the lack of public funding has brought in more private funding, generally from very large corporations um, that tend to, that have actually been shown to influence the results of research that these universities are putting out when it comes to agriculture. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I start by, by saying is one of the things I, <clears throat> I didn't mention yesterday and didn't mention earlier about government programs that supported industrialization. That shift came in the universities in the 70s as well when I was, was, was there. Then we basically shifted from the family farm to the supporting industrial agriculture, and that sort of validated it's, it's not only – the assistance that you give to farmers to making the transition to industrial agriculture, but it was the encouragement and the validation that this is the thing to do. And, and the universities continue to, to validate industrial agriculture. And that's because of the political influence, again, on, on the universities and now the corporate influence. Because when you come around and they, they said, okay, um, when they begin to cut funding, they cut funding for public institutions rather than the universities saying, as I suggested that they do, is say, okay, if, if you've got less funds, then we can do less. If you want us to do more, then you need to give us more funds. But instead of doing that, they went to the corporations, and the corporations were more than willing to come in and, and start funding part of the research. And when I was still in the university, we were, it was much less prominent than it is now. But a corporation could come in and give a scientist like oh, $10,000, and, and the scientist would then have experiment station funds or other sources that may be $100,000, paid his or her salary and paid for a laboratory and various other things. So they could use $10,000 to leverage $100,000 of public funds. But they could dictate the agenda with that. <laughs> that extra 10000 would determine what the research project was mm -hmm. about and so on. Now I think they fund even even more of it, and they started building buildings and things that are named after you have the the Monsanto yeah. <laughs> Center there at the University of Missouri and various other things of that nature. But so they have tremendous influence on the agenda. But I but I think their most powerful influence is their legislative power. They have the power 
to to penalize anybody that doesn't follow kind of the corporate agenda because they will go to the legislature and say, cut out this program. The Leopold Center for Sustainable Agriculture at Iowa State mm-hmm. University was defunded. It was one of the premier kind of organizations within universities that were doing research on sustainability issues and good research. And, uh, you know, they come and said to the state legislature, the people that didn't like what they were doing, they were particularly, I think, what, as long as they thought it was just dealing with small farmers and niche farmers, then they had something called agriculture of the middle. <laughs> and they started talking about how do we get these mid-sized farms and help them transition to small, you know, smaller operations and sustainable operations. Then that was challenging the traditional agriculture stronghold. And so, so I think their greatest influence is on public funds, but increasingly they, they're funding the research and they're taking the credit for it. And an important part of that is when the research is funded by the corporations, then they sign an agreement that the results of the research isn't released until the corporation has seen it or maybe not be released at all. And certain amounts of the research when you're doing it, if it comes up with a discovery that's patentable and is patented by the corporation or maybe in partnership with the university, the university gets a cut out of it. But it's not going to the public. It's going to a private sector to be patented and then sold to the public. It's not given to the public because it was a public investment. Mm-hmm. It's sold back to people. So it's it's really a difficult situation. And again, here I tell people about the land-grant university system. I think it was the greatest system that's ever been created in education. I got all my education there, and <laughs> I taught in land-grant universities and did research and extension for 30 years. And I just worshipped the land-grant university because I had an opportunity to come off of a, you know, a poor farm at the time I left it and and able to go to a university and get a good education. It's my university, you know? Yeah. And I tell people it belongs, these public universities belong to the people. I've said, I wrote to the University of Missouri, uh, one time I wrote, put a letter to the editor in the Columbia paper. They selected a new president and they got a corporate executive to come in as president. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what does he know about education? So I said, Let's divide up the University of Missouri, and let's have the private University of Missouri, and then let's have the public university. And if the public university turns out to be real small, then we can go to the taxpayers and say, let's build it up, and then you can run the private university however you want to because it's private funds. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I love the, the, the had a whole system, but it's being, it's being taken over. So back to my advice to people and what I've told them, it's still on a – podcast you can probably find it online it was uh, making a talk at the leopold center for sustainable agriculture Mm -hmm. had a uh, lecture the shivers lecture i think it was and somebody asked that question and i said we need to have a revolt you ought to go to the university and say this is our university and we want it back and i said you you ought to hang the dean of college in effigy outside the (laughs) outside the administration building well it probably wasn't a wise statement but, but i was basically making the point i said if you go into a a Walmart store, and you have $100 and I have 10 you can buy 10 times as much stuff as I can. But if you go into a voting booth and you have $100 and I have 10 we still get one vote. And, and a public institution should be like a voting booth. Regardless of who you are, how much money you have, how much power you have, everyone's voice should be given equal weight. And you ought to d- be demanding that. It's like we heard yesterday, go to your legislature and say, I have a right to be here. Go to our university and say, this is our university. I have as much right to be here as the president of Monsanto. So I need, you need to listen to me. 
I could not agree more. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think we are getting a little tight on time. Okay. Um, so we can go ahead and wrap up if you'd like. Um, is there anything else you'd like to say about um, anything that you're working on right now um, or just anything in general? Well, I, I would say I've, I spend a good part of my time now as an agricultural economist <clears throat> because I understand the nature of the issue, trying to remind people or convince people. The economy... Money, wealth, was never meant to be the fundamental purpose for doing anything. It, it's not the end. The, the economy provides us with an impersonal means through transaction, buying or selling, to do something else, to meet our basic needs. It's a means to something else. And it, it's a means in, in our personal life to fulfilling some purpose to be here. You know, if we have no purpose to being here, it doesn't make any difference what we do. Uh, I tell people, if, if there's no purpose to life, uh, there's no reason to get up in the morning. But still, there's no reason not to. <laughs> so <laughs> you, you can't tell right from wrong because it really doesn't make any difference what you do. So there is some purpose to life, and we need to think about that. And and the economy is just one of the means that we have of, of fulfilling that purpose, of living the life that we were intended to live. And we don't live that life alone. We live it in relationship with other people. And those relationships, those personal relationships, have no economic value because they're, they're not exchangeable. You can't transact them. They're purely personal. When I was talking about local markets having that personal value in addition to the economic value. And that's an important part of what we're here to do. And the economy is just a means of doing that. And, and if we don't know what we want to do with money, we'll never have enough because we'll always feel, well, if we had more, maybe we could do something else. So I think what we've done is, is we know there's a purpose to life, but you can't prove it. And so we come out of this age of enlightenment with scientific, we say, well, if you can't prove it, it's not real. But we said, yeah, but there has to be. So we kind of substituted having money for purpose. We said, okay, if I figure out what I want to do eventually, then maybe I'll have the money to do it. <laughs> but we need to figure out what it is we need to do with our life. And I, I think that I'm convinced that that purpose is good. I'm, I think we're here to do something that makes a contribution to the greater good. And when we have enough money to do that, then we've got all the money we need. I think I told you earlier, I retired almost 20 years ago, but I could live on my retirement, even though it was a, you know, a little over half of what I was making before. It was enough for me to do what I thought my purpose was. And so far, it's working out fine. So that's my message these days. The economy is just a means. Don't let it take priority over everything else. It's important because it allows you to do things that you couldn't do otherwise. It allows you to promote you and allows you to fulfill your purpose. But if you don't know what it is you want to do with your life, that money is basically meaningless. Right. Better to be rich in relationships than rich in yes. money. <laughs> um, my grandfather actually told me something to that that effect once he said um and he started he was a carpenter and upholsterer in a very small town in Iowa um and he raised five kids on that income and my grandmother was a piano teacher and he said um what you have to do is you have to look at your little piece in the world and decide to make it better and you can you can care and you can look at all the other pieces but what you can do and what is entirely in your power is to change your little piece and he was able to raise his entire family with community Absolutely. instead of with money. Absolutely. And if we do our little piece in our little piece of the world, that's all I'm doing. That's all you and I are doing. We just happen mm -hmm. to be sharing the same little piece of the world <laughs> today. But if, if we do our 
our part in that little piece, no matter how small it may look. And if everybody else does their part, and some of them may be big and some may be small, then together, then, then we'll do what humanity is supposed to do here on Earth. And I, I closed with that quote yesterday. I don't know if I can remember the only thing. You know, I, I am just one, only one, but I am one. I can't do everything, but I can do something. something. And the thing that I ought to do, I can do, and by the grace of God, I will do. So I'll close with that. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, thank you. This has been wonderful. We'd like to remind our audience that the views of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of Biteable or of our staff personally. The purpose of the Biteable podcast is to encourage spirited dialogue around topics like food, nutrition, animal and human welfare, and the food system. Part of having an open and spirited dialogue is accepting that others have views that are different than ours and working to understand how their experiences have differed from our own. We encourage all listeners to do their own research on any and all topics discussed during the show. That being said, we hope you enjoyed the podcast and thanks for listening.